This episode is brought to you by Rockstar Energy Drink. Be honest, are you procrastinating by listening to this podcast? It's okay. You just need Rockstar Focus. Choose from three delicious flavors, each crafted with ingredients for an ideal energy and mental boost, like lion's mane, 200 milligrams of caffeine, and zero sugar. Visit rockstarenergy.com to learn more. At least 75 milligrams of caffeine has been shown to help improve attention. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Catherine Howard. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hook. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook, email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And today we are reviewing Catherine Howard, fifth of the six wives of Henry VIII, and the second cool. one to be called Catherine. Yeah, when you... <laughs> yeah. When you start to get repeated names <laughs> uh catherine howard perhaps the one to traditionally receive the least sympathy she's certainly portrayed as being very girlish or childlike on um tudors <laughs> yes we've now moved on from Woolfall, so we've got a new frame of reference for all <laughs> yeah that's true yeah this is where Woolfall ends isn't it yeah this is now all brand new huh? i've no knowledge of this place no no i i, I don't have um Mark to hold my hand through this. Biography! As is so often the case, we don't know exactly when Catherine Howard was born. The dates range from 1518, which would make her 22 when she became queen, to 1527, when she'd have been just 13. Um, so 18 or 13, but both... Um, well, 20, the- well, absolute oldest she could possibly is 22, and the absolute latest is 13, but it's thought to be a bit more in the middle. So probably about 18 when she becomes queen, so about 1522. Uh, and she's the daughter of Joyce Culpepper and Lord Edmund Howard, which makes her the niece of the powerful third Duke of Norfolk and indeed the first cousin of Anne Boleyn, albeit some 20 years younger than Anne Boleyn. And Culpepper? Yes, there, there is a relationship, but it's very distant. Okay. Anyone unfamiliar with the name Culpepper will come up in a non-maternal context later. So she's of the Howard family, which is obviously very, very powerful, but her father is the third son of the old Duke, and he himself has a large family. Catherine is one of six children. So this, combined with the fact that he has a distinct lack of favour from Henry VIII, means that her father is constantly in debt. So although she's a Howard, it's not quite as illustrious as perhaps other bits of the Howard branches. What do they mean? Because he's out of favour, he's, he's debt in debt well he's got so he's got the fact that he's not um, he's got a large family to support he's probably not very good with money anyway but he's also thus not getting from Henry important jobs and commissions which would come with lots of money he's not being granted all the estates and all of the benefices etc 
Catherine's mother dies in 1528, so Catherine is farmed off to various relatives before settling in uh, Lambeth at the household of her father's stepmother, Agnes Howard, who is the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. Right. Uh, she is one of the highest-ranking non-royal women in England, um, and she runs something of a boarding school for the hard-up offspring of aristocratic relatives and associates. So there are lots of young wards that get sent to the Dowager Duchess to live with her and to be brought up and educated <laughs> in her household. Um, though she's something of an absentee headmistress because she's always at court, or she's often away, often at court. So the regime is rather lax. But she would have been strict. Yes. Mm. So they'd be fearful of the Duchess, but she's often out. Mm. I feel a movie. Well, indeed. And as the highest ranking girl there, as well as being naturally confident and vivacious, Catherine seems to have been the ringleader uh, for various sort of late night shenanigans. So acquiring uh, various keys to the household, helping to smuggle wine and food out of the kitchen, helping to smuggle boys into and out of the bedchambers. Yeah. I mean, that's just boarding school. I, I know it well. Um, I feel like I know this Catherine character, who was also called Catherine, as it <laughs> <laughs> Now, whilst in the Duchess's household, Catherine enters into two uh, relationships. The first was with one of her music teachers, Henry Mannix, from about 1536, which, as I said, we're not 100% sure on the ages, but that makes her about 14 at the time. How was the teacher? Uh, again, we're not quite sure, but probably his early 20s. Yeah. Um, we'll talk more about this later. Crikey. Now, Catherine resists uh, Mannix's desire for the relationship to become more serious. Um, she is very much aware of his inferior social standing and her own honour as a Howard. So she ultimately dismisses him a couple of years later, saying, I will never be naught with you and able to marry me, ye be not. Okay. So Mannix is dealt with. More serious is her relationship with Francis Derham, uh, who is the secretary to the Dowager Duchess, and their relationship begins in 1538. Moves very quickly from sort of passing trinkets, etc., to each other to actually being uh, fully consummated. And indeed, they frequently and publicly refer to each other as husband and wife. It's just sort of pet names to a certain extent. Um, or at least to her it is. By 1539, she seems to have tired of Derham, who's got somewhat of a sort of possessive and temperamental character and does seem to think that they are properly bound to each other. Um, and she uses her summonses to become a lady-in-waiting to Anne of Cleves as an opportunity to end the relationship. Uh, but Catherine has been uh, called to court to be a lady-in-waiting for Anne of Cleves. Uh, now, interesting, the Duchess of Norfolk, or the, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, recalled that Henry VIII did cast a fantasy to Catherine Howard the first time that ever His Grace saw her. Yeah, I mean, she's clearly hot stuff, isn't she? Uh, but it doesn't seem to have led anywhere before the arrival of Anne of Cleves, so suggesting that perhaps Henry's noticed her, thinks she looks pretty, but he's quite excited to meet Anne of Cleves, so it, he doesn't do anything about that at the time. However, when Anne of Cleves proves not to be to Henry's tastes, and that oh, yeah. marriage very quickly disintegrates, uh, the royal eye wanders back to Catherine. So by this point, she is probably about 18 years old, uh, slender, despite often being described as plump, but Howard women apparently all tend to be quite, quite slim. Uh, also very pretty. Uh, she's skilled in courtly graces and seems to have been basically just quite fun and likeable. She seems like a sort of pop starlet. Mm. But I, no one has said here that she's super bright. 
it's uh, you know is but that's just because everyone normally focuses on the beauty of women rather than uh their intelligence or whatever yeah so they obviously got a lot of you know Anne Boleyn was very bright and Catherine of Aragon obviously very well educated Catherine is probably similar to a couple of her predecessors she's got the basics in terms of the sort of household stuff and the like needlework and embroidery that sort of stuff yeah it's more it? about how to hold herself at court so it's about yeah. that poise and that sort of getting around like that so she's not but she's literate but not academic we don't know exactly when their relationship started, but from April 1540, Henry was lavishing Catherine with gifts, uh, starting very romantically with the goods and monies of two recently executed felons. He totally is a gangster. He's Scarface. <laughs> He's sorting someone out with some properties of some dudes he whacked. <laughs> Now, what Catherine thought of Henry, who at this point is 49, obese and increasingly disabled, no. is, uh, as you can imagine, not recorded to history. But uh, the pertinent points are that he is incredibly powerful and he can't really refuse his proposal of marriage once made. Catherine's father had died earlier in the year that she came to court, 1539, so her position at court is secured by uh, Uncle Norfolk. And it's often assumed that Norfolk effectively pimps her out to Henry. Uh, so Catherine is advised in what sort to entertain the King's Highness and how often. Uh, but the reality is actually Norfolk barely knows Catherine at this point, And he's probably just trying to take advantage of the situation when it presents it to him, uh, when it presents itself. He's not expecting this. No, but still, that doesn't mean it's pre-planned pimping or uh, opportunistic pimping. Baby, we're still pimping. But I think it's more perhaps that Henry VIII is the prime mover and then everybody else is like, oh, oh, right, okay, great, um, right, she's one of ours, okay, okay, what do we do, what do we do? Rather than that Norfolk uh, brought her to court with this in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just three weeks after Anne of Cleves accepts her annulment, what? Catherine Howard marries Henry VIII on the 28th of July, 1540, the very same day that Thomas Cromwell is executed. Whoa, hang on, how do we get here? They haven't courted or anything yet. Yeah, you remember, he sent her all that gold that he took from the felons that he executed. That was it. That was just like, wing her some gold and now we're presumably going to... Does he just marry everyone? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's April uh, and this is July. So, as I said, we don't know exactly when things start, but the the April gift is the first thing we've got in the diary. It's tragic, isn't it? What, he's, on, he's on wife number five and he's still going for this wild romance idea you know like if this were modern day and someone's on their fifth wife and saying oh you're never going to believe it we just fell in love and we married after three months you're like, <laughs> so, yeah i can actually totally believe that what are you talking about he's got to he should just take some time but you're right though i mean henry is absolutely infatuated so the french ambassador marillac observed the king is so amorous of her that he knows not how to make sufficient demonstrations of his affection he caresses her more than he did the others. The new, clean, the new queen has completely acquired the king's grace. He just can't believe his luck. Uh, they enjoy golden summer in 1540, something of a honeymoon, more for Henry than for Catherine Raby, because they basically <laughs> just go from hunting lodge to hunting lodge. Uh, yeah, there are lots of nice. banquets and feasts in her honour as well. Uh, Catherine's unexpected rise does quickly allow the Howard family to regain influence, so many high-profile court appointments, both among her ladies and also... Uh, Why they positions lost at court. Um, well, I guess uh, Cromwell had been, and oh, right. sort of reformist lot had been more preeminent. Um, however, Catherine herself does not seem to have been a particularly factional figure. She made overtures to Thomas Cranmer, the reforming 
Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and interceded for both reformers and conservatives who fell foul of Henry's wrath. All right. Well, I didn't, didn't expect that. She's how old? Oh, yeah, we've done this. 20, 18, <laughs> 18, 19, yeah. depending on. Um, surprising. Domestically, she met with Henry's uh, three children and graciously welcomed Anne of Cleves back to court. In what? Just for a visit. Okay, right, yeah, not in a position. No. <laughs> uh, things reached something of a peak for her queenship in the summer of 1541 when she accompanied Henry VIII for his one and only progress to northern England, uh, which was a magnificent ceremonial reconciliation between Henry and his subjects after the pilgrimage of Grace Rebellion yes. a few years earlier. And he was terrifically rude to Shardlake, if I remember, in York. <laughs> he was indeed. There's another reference that we got. Yeah. Uh, however, the honeymoon, of course, cannot last. Henry falls ill with malaria. And then his old jousting leg injury flares up with an infected ulcer that left him in agony. Uh, he reportedly went black in the face as doctors had to drain the pus from him, the wound. Oh, dear. Hmm. So he recovers... But his physical decline is apparent to everybody. He's now got a waist of 54 inches, a chest of 58 inches, and according to the Spanish ambassador, Chapuy, the worst legs in the world. <laughs> and we know how much we love a shapely calf. After all of this, Henry falls into something of a depression. He refuses to listen to music, accuses his counsellors of being lying time servers who by false accusations had made him put to death the most faithful servant he ever had in Thomas Cromwell. Absolutely right. So he regrets it now. Mm. <laughs> Bit late, but... Now he's got a poorly leg. He also refused to see Catherine at this time. Because he's embarrassed about his poorly leg. Quite possibly he's just embarrassed, but Catherine is very isolated and feels insecure about her position. And perhaps she's sort of prone to that. She does tend... To, she's used to getting compliments and being mm. adored, so she doesn't do so well when she gets the opposite of that so mm. she required reassurance from henry that there was no truth to rumors that anne of cleves would return as queen and uh, although henry recovers by easter and catherine is rumored to be pregnant nothing comes of this pregnancy and some have speculated she may even have feigned pregnancy as a means mm. of improving her standing with henry you know she is uh, concocting rumors of her own pregnancy that aren't true that's a bit ill-advised but worse is to follow because catherine starts an affair with thomas culpepper He's a very handsome young man, a bit of a favourite of Henry's as well. He's a gentleman of the Privy Chamber, so he waits on Henry, including, you know, when he's got his bad ulcers. A Privy Councillor? We like those. Not a Privy Councillor, a gentleman oh. of the Privy Chamber. He's sort of like the male equivalent of a lady-in-waiting. Catherine and Culpepper actually had had a flirtation when she first came to court, i.e. before Henry VIII took a shine to her. Mm. Um, he moved on when uh, someone else when she demurred at his desire for a more physical relationship but evidently feelings linger so in april of 1541 she summoned him to her chambers at greenwich gifting him a velvet cap and then sends him food and messages of concern when he fell ill now it's difficult for them to get, really get any privacy at court but the disruption of the northern progress in the summer provided more opportunity so catherine charges uh, one of her ladies in waiting lady rochford who we might recall is the widow of george boleyn um, she is charged with scouting out potential meeting spots at each new residence. So the first rendezvous takes place at Lincoln, followed by further encounters at Pontefract and York. So Lady Rochford will find a place where he can get in without being seen and they can have a privacy, just the two of them, in their room alone at night together for many hours. 
the question obviously you'd be asking is what on earth are they thinking some people have wondered whether maybe Catherine's trying to use Culpepper as a sort of surrogate stud to secure her position as queen by oh. her pregnant is it just a reaction to her loneliness during Henry's depression does she seek out more adoring male company does she simply fall in love with this uh, man who's described as a beautiful youth from Culpepper's uh, perspective obviously Catherine's vote attractive on a personal level but he is more aware than most of the precarious nature of henry's health because as i said he does wait on him including during that time of the ulcers perhaps he sees in catherine something of a meal ticket in a post-henry world if he marries the dowager queen mm. obviously after henry's dead that's you know that sets him up for life yeah well that though if that were the plan you'd think he'd wait until the king were gone mm. well would you i don't know well, whatever they're thinking, what they're doing is incredibly dangerous mm. and uh, requires the utmost secrecy, but Catherine is not able to keep her house in order. Lady Rochford is a surprising choice in confidence. Uh, she's almost twice Catherine's age and not a close relative, unlike mm. many of the other ladies. Uh, so that causes tension amongst the other ladies-in-waiting. Um, whilst there is also the rather unwelcome return of a lovelorn and unpredictable Francis Derham. Who Wait, comes uh, what? Yeah, where's he been? Um, he's been off in Ireland, uh, potentially being a pirate, which we'll talk about in the Privy Chamber a bit more, but he comes back and basically demands of the Diana Duchess that she secure him a job in Catherine's household. And as Gareth Russell has noted, refusing him or accepting him were both dangerous options because he knows stuff that can basically bring Catherine down. So you can't say no and upset him, but equally he's very unstable and unpredictable, so you don't really want him close either but so his plan is to blackmail them we're not quite sure is he just after a job is he still in love with Catherine wanting but to be close did they to give her? him a job well yeah they do ultimately they hope that by giving him a job they will be able to ensure his silence that's the only option isn't it or call his bluff but so what happens with him? Does he is he after Well that? he remains a liability, boasts of his close associations with Catherine. Uh one of Catherine's gentlemen ushers took umbrage at Derham lingering over his dinner on one occasion, which was something which only basically the uh the council of the Queen were able to do. So he sent a message asking Derham whether he were of the Queen's Council. Uh to which Derham, possibly drunk, replied Go to Mr. Johns and tell him I was of the Queen's Council before he knew her well, and shall be when she hath forgotten him. However, uh, despite all of the problems that he could have caused, he is not the initial uh, spark that lights a fire. Uh, Thomas Cranmer is approached by a chap called John Lascelles, uh, a former ally of Thomas Cromwell's, who revealed that his wife uh, told him that she'd avoided uh, trying to re-enter Catherine's service because the Queen was light, both in living and conditions, um, having witnessed her affairs with both Mannix and Derham at Lambeth. Oh dear. So, Lascelles tells Cranmer basically about Mannix and Derham and what yeah. happened at Lambeth. Cranmer decides that Henry needs to know, but understandably doesn't really fancy telling him in person. Yeah. So instead, he leaves an anonymous letter detailing the accusations for Henry to find during Mass. What? It's like taking someone to a public place to fire them so he's not going <laughs> to make a scene in, in the church. But mind you, it's his church now. We can do what he likes. Well, indeed. It's more that it's like they know that Henry will be there. They know where he will sit. So if you leave a letter on his seat, then he will find it and pick it up. Whereas, Put it on his desk. 
well yeah but then other people are going to find it aren't they it needs to be that only henry can will get the letter so obviously mass is a very private area his own mass is very private it's a place that you could put a letter and only henry will get the letter whereas if you just leave it in one of his rooms a whole host of servants and counsellors but if you write henry on it under his pillow well, I mean, it works, so I don't think there's really a yeah. problem with Cranmer's tactics. I think, I think Cranmer knew Cranmer, the king, of course, and the situation better than you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows his way around appeal or two. Indeed, uh, and it works. So Henry does get the letter. Uh, he initially dismisses the accusations as an invention by a faction opposed to Norfolk because mm-hmm. of the family relationship. But nevertheless, he does still instruct Cranmer to secretly investigate, telling him not to desist until you have got to the bottom of the pot. Mm-hmm. Well, that he started digging now. That's it. Uh, Henry avoids Catherine while Cranmer does the digging, uh, and she's effectively kept under house arrest in her apartments at Hampton Court. Marillac rather poignantly observed, She has taken no kind of pastime but kept in her chambers. Before she did nothing but dance and rejoice, but now when the musicians come, they are told there is no more time to dance. So, Cranmer does his investigations and talks with all of the key people. Mannix admitted his intimacy with Catherine, though insisted that he never knew her carnally, while Derham confirms that he had had carnal relations with Catherine. What is wrong with that, though? Before Henry was uh, around? Well, yes, it's before Henry was around, but Catherine is meant to be coming to Henry uh, as a maid. Because, you know, she's not been previously married, so she should be... Do you know what we're looking at here, then? It's one of Henry's favourites, but a bing grey areas. Well, this one isn't really so grey, is it? Because she's literally... <laughs> yeah. ...has been sleeping with people. Yeah. Um, and Derham, of course, as you said, husband and wife, all that sort of stuff. So mm. it's rather more advanced, actually, than you know, Anne of Cleves. On the 6th of November, a grief-stricken Henry receives the news and sets off for Whitehall the next day, never to see Catherine again. Gosh. As ever with Henry, clean break, once he's decided. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's now, Cath- it's now Catherine's turn, as, as ever. <laughs> I see, see where he's coming from. I do. I do exactly the same. Go cold turkey every time. It's quite, quite, um, it's quite disturbing. This actually, yeah. <laughs> so it's now Catherine's turn to come in for questioning. Cramer speaks with her over the next couple of days, initially finding her in such lamentation and heaviness as I never saw no creature, stating that it would have pitied any man's heart to see. Cramer tells Catherine the king would be merciful if she confessed, um, as he said, for oh. fear that she would enter into a frenzy. Yeah. I bet. She'd be in a blind panic like a caged animal. Because he was initially planning to go in a bit harder and holding the promise of potential mercy later, but once he gets in the room, he's like, okay, no, I need to lead with this because she's hysterical. Oh, God, that power that people have over other people, it, it just makes me feel sick. When she calms down, she admits to the relationships with Mannix and Derham, uh, though she denies Cranmer's suggestion that she and Derham had actually been betrothed to each other. Mm. Now, this is often seen as a blunder on Catherine's part, because if she had admitted being betrothed, her marriage to Henry would have been annulled, and she could thus have escaped any charges of adultery. Oh, no. The thing is, at this point, they don't yet know about Culpepper. The investigations are only about what happened before she married the king. 
Oh, so she's like trying to get out of that trap, not knowing that it's actually an escape from the one that's coming and she doesn't know about. Henry was actually relatively cheered up to hear that she hadn't betrayed him, that these are all things that happened before he married to her, uh, before mm. they married. So although it means the marriage is going to be over and it's going to be annulled, as the Dowager Duchess, following events from Lambeth, um, said, they're still hopeful that Catherine might survive it. Because the, the Duchess says, if it were done while they were here, I Lambeth, neither the Queen nor Derham should die for it. Mm. Because she hasn't betrayed Henry, it meant mm. that she, he sort of married under false pretense of who she was in her previous Which is life and indiscretions. Serious, but it is, but it's not the same yeah. as Anne Boleyn at this point. Mm. Unfortunately for Catherine, more is to come. According to Marillac, Derham, to show his innocence since the marriage, said that Culpepper had succeeded him in the Queen's affections. Oh, Derham. Oh, can... He is a pest, isn't he? Now, it's not known whether he knows about Catherine and Culpepper later, or if he is simply referring to their initial flirtation at court, which is probably what brought him back from Ireland when he hears about it. Right. This is put to Catherine, and she makes a mistake as well stating that Derham had asked her if I should be married to Mr Culpepper, for so he said he heard reported. Now, in both cases, they are still referring to Catherine and Culpepper's initial flirtation before she married Henry VIII, but obviously it now raises new questions that she doesn't really want them to get the answers to, i.e., well, what happened with Catherine and Culpepper? What is that relationship all about? So, on the 12th of November, Catherine is questioned uh, again by Cranmer, this time specifically about Culpepper, and she admits to their secret meetings. Mm. So Lady Rochford and Culpepper also brought in. Uh, during questioning, Lady Rochford was apparently seized with raving madness. Oh, it, yeah, because she feels herself in that trap again. They're like caged animals, and and there's they're on the conveyor belt to the to the block. Oh, it makes me feel absolutely sick as a pike. Culpepper denied that they had slept together, but admitted that they were both minded to do so. That they wanted to. Mm, but that they hadn't. Why throw in that horrible little detail? You, he perhaps thought that being uber truthful and saying something not appropriate would think, well, I mean, he wouldn't have said, wouldn't have said that at all, so he must be telling the truth. Uh, a search of his rooms found a love letter to him written by Catherine. Oh, idiot. Oh, yes, a foolish to write, even more foolish to keep. Yes, yes. It's idiots. Mm. So the defence of we didn't, but we were going to isn't really a strong defence in these circumstances. No, it's like when you have a boyfriend or girlfriend at school and if there's been infidelity, it's like they're trying to maintain a storyline of <laughs> keeping this couple together <laughs> because it's the official thing to do. But like what? That's not. That's not an excuse, is it? Just being in love with the other person, but I'll stay with you. <laughs> it's not a defence, anyway. <laughs> On hearing the full details, Henry raged so violently it was feared he had gone mad. Uh, he called for his sword, apparently intending to kill Catherine there and then, declaring she would never have such delight in her lechery as she should have pain and torture in her death, before then breaking down in tears. Hmm. I mean, he's a total psychopath, isn't he? I can see it, he'd get obsessed with someone to the point where he would also murder them. I mean, he, he did, yeah. but, you know, it's a very disturbed character. 
On the 22nd of November, a proclamation is issued stating that Catherine was no longer Queen of England and that many of her Howard relatives are sent to the Tower accused of misprision of treason, i.e. knowing about but not revealing treason. Okay. Uncle Norfolk washes his hands of the lot of them. He tells Shapwee that he wishes the Queen to be burnt alive before retreating to Kenninghall, where he wrote to Henry, denying any involvement in his family's false and traitorous proceedings against your royal majesty, deploring the abominable deeds by two of my nieces. Yeah, because it's... It, um, Anne Boleyn was his niece. Yeah. And he, he, he totally bust her as well. Yeah. He was head of the... Uh, the tribunal. The court, yeah. Oh, good old Uncle Norfolk. <laughs> yeah, he'll always, he'll always be there. Uncle Norbed, more like. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we are properly back at school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was he forgiven? Yeah, yeah, he gets away with it. Ah, oh, Norfolk. On the first of December, Derham and Culpepper are found guilty of treason and sentenced to, tr- to traitors' deaths. Though Culpepper's sentence is commuted to a beheading on account of his being a gentleman. Rather harsh on Derham, given that his relationship was before Catherine was queen. Yeah. But uh, the councillors assumed that his appointment back into her household probably indicated the affair had resumed, despite the fact that he repeatedly denies this under torture. What's the point, though? That if you're getting tortured for and you're going down, just Admit, whatever. Both men are executed uh, by various means on the 10th of December and their heads are put on display at London Bridge. I was there today. <laughs> They're not there anymore. <laughs> However, they would not simply condemn someone as lofty as the Queen to death by a secret act of attainder, so following the precedent of Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard is offered a trial. <laughs> but she turns it down. Yeah. <laughs> What's the point? Perhaps her pride meant she didn't want her indiscretions picked over in a public forum. Maybe she hoped that just total subjection to Henry will improve her hope of mercy. That's the last play, isn't it, of a uh, uh, Tudor queen? Just could totally submit yourself to Henry and hope for mercy. Mm. She doesn't get it. No. Uh, instead, she is uh, condemned to death by a secret act of attainder. Well, not so secret, because it's a parliamentary act, because it not only uh, condemns her for treason and condemns her to death, but it also uh, makes it formally illegal for a queen to commit adultery or to fail to disclose her sexual history to the king within 30 <laughs> days of marriage. Right. This happened five times now. We need to at least put it in law, OK? Because mm. I am getting sick to the back teeth of funding these weddings. <laughs> So on the 10th of February, uh, the councillors come to take Catherine to the Tower of London. Uh, she screams uh, when they get there, and she has to be manhandled uh, onto oh. the boat. Uh, passes under London Bridge, which is obviously is bearing the heads of Durham and Culpeper. Not clear if she'd oh. been able to see them or not. But The Bill of Retainer receives royal assent the next day, and on the 12th of February, Catherine is told to prepare for her death. And Shapri reports uh, a rather unusual request that she makes. She asks to have the block brought into her so that she might see how to place herself, which was done, and she made trial of it. So, in other words, that's mm. practising putting her head yeah. on the executioner's block. Now, it sounds but, rather ma- yeah. macabre, the uh, executioner's block, but in her brief queenship, uh, Thomas Cromwell and Margaret Pole both suffered botched executions. Oh, right. So she's at least going to get her bit right. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. if that's all you've got left, you know. Yeah, definitely. The fall's all you've got, etc. Though pale and terrified, she had to be helped to climb the scaffold. Catherine was composed for her execution. 
and she's beheaded on the 13th of February, 1542, aged about 20 years old. Gosh. Uh, and I, as far as I can see it, the crime for her is just taking part in Love Island. Uh, she's followed immediately by Lady Rochford, uh, after Henry VIII changed the law to allow the execution of people regardless of their mental health conditions. Nice man. And on that very day, Henry held a great banquet with 26 ladies at his own table and gave many such feasts over the following days. It's such a cliche. Is that what it is? Is he the original gangster? <laughs> that, that's, we finally found him, like the missing link. He is the original PIMP. <laughs> Oh, Henry, you boring old duffer. So that was the life and queenship of Catherine Howard. We will review her after a quick break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Battleliness. While Catherine generally aimed to please, she was no doormat and she didn't take well to anyone showing her a lack of respect. As such, she fell out with Henry's eldest daughter, Mary. Oh no. Now this perhaps is not surprising. Catherine is Mary's fourth stepmother <laughs> in four years. Oh god, and how old is she? She is five or six years older than Catherine. Yep. Catherine also, as we said, cousin of Anne Boleyn, who was obviously despised by Mary. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Howard also replaces Anne of Cleves, that Mary quite liked. Oh, uh, yeah. And actually, it's a, a well-rehearsed thing for her now. Like, it, it, There's the same thing in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. She would be the evil younger stepmother. And I imagine Henry and, and Mary's relationship will be better afterwards. Because she never liked her, if you know what I mean. She was always team anti-Catherine. A Shapley reported that Catherine complained that the princess did not treat her with the same respect as her two predecessors. Mm. Catherine wanted Mary punished, and she was threatened with the removal of two of her maids. Okay. So reluctantly, Mary found means to conciliate Catherine. And although absent uh, from court at Christmas, Mary sent Catherine a gift that was uh, well-received. She was then invited back to court though rather meanly henry does still remove two of the maids uh, one of whom died suddenly soon afterwards oh, man. he henry is is awful to mary he is he is but still in terms of battliness you know catherine stood her ground and mary mm. backed down yeah so it's a little win yeah otherwise though that's kind of it really she used, loses the crown despite being young likable and not really actually having many enemies. oh i forgot this is battliness yeah yeah yes. of course that's yeah. it yeah. yeah, it's like she sort of lost a game that no one else is playing. Yeah, I can't even give it one, no. 
I guess it's just that it sort of reveals a little bit of something about her, that she's generally very likeable and very outgoing and nice to everybody, but Mary doesn't show her respect. She's not having that. Point five. Yeah, no, it doesn't uh, It doesn't warrant a high score. I'll, I'll give her a one. So, really? 1.5. Yeah. Scandal. Catherine Howard became only the second, and indeed the last, English queen to be executed. And while Anne Boleyn is widely thought to have been condemned on trumped-up charges, Catherine is generally considered guilty. Mm. So this makes a far racier content than we are used to on mm. Max Factor. Yeah. Uh, when Mary Lascelles reproached Mannix for his relationship with Catherine, he laughed at her, saying, I know her well enough, for I have had her by the and I know it among a hundred. And she loves me, and I love her, and she hath said to me that I shall have her maidenhead, though it be painful to her, and not doubting, but I will be good to her hereafter. Oh, quite cute. Um, right. Well, he's, he knows what, he knows uh, what's what, doesn't he? With Francis Derham, both admitted to having had carnal knowledge of each other on numerous occasions. Um, and obviously, because this is shared accommodation, you know, you're thinking that sort of boarding school style setup. So mm. there are plenty of witnesses. Yeah. So Mary Lascelles recalled, she hath seen them kiss after a wonderful manner, for they would kiss and hang by their bills together as if they were two sparrows. <laughs> bills? Like that? Like puckered lips? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they said they were pecking. <laughs> <laughs> one gentleman visitor quipped hark to derham broken winded after one strenuous uh, pecking alice restwood who legitimately shared catherine's bed complained that there was such puffing and blowing between them that she was weary of the same i still don't think that that means um the um the, the act margaret bennett caught a glimpse of them in the act she looked out at a hole of a door, and there saw Derham pluck up her clothes above her navel, so that she might well discern her bodies. Oh, right, okay, fine, yep. Now, these discretions, these indiscretions made her an unsuitable consort for Henry VIII, but it was her affair with Culpepper that obviously cost Catherine her life. As you said, she made the first moves, renewing their previous acquaintance by summoning him to her chamber at Greenwich in April 1541, where she gifted him a fair cap of velvet garnished with a brooch, telling him, put this under your cloak and let nobody see it. Mm-hmm. How do we know that? Uh, this is, uh, they, they tell us in their confessions. Oh, right. He teases her in response, alas, madam, why did you not do this when you were a maid? I, before yeah, you married the king. Point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, uh, as I said, doesn't seem to enjoying being, enjoy being teased, so she answered, Is this all the thanks you give me for the cap? If I had known you would have said these words, you should never have had it. There's bickering already, are they? <laughs> yeah. uh, not long after this, though, Culpepper fell ill, so Catherine sent him food, and in what proved a fatal error, a letter. Mm-hmm. Master Culpepper, I never longed so much for a thing as I do to see you and to speak with you. When I think that you shall depart from me again, it makes my heart to die. If my trust is always in you, that you will be as you have promised me, and in that hope I trust upon still, praying you that you will come when my Lady Rochford is here, for then I shall be best at leisure to be at your commandment. Yours as long as life endures. Catherine. Yeah, that life endures but isn't great now the affair really starts during the northern progress and uh, specifically at lincoln castle uh, almost met with a disaster when a watchman noticed that the back door leading to catherine's bedchamber was ajar so locks it but of course it's ajar because 
that's how Lady Rochford has left it, so that oh, no. Culpepper can... <laughs> oh, no. So Catherine and Lady Rochford, who are just the other side, are forced to duck so that the watch, the guard doesn't see them. Uh, and then they're locked in, but thankfully Culpepper is able to pick the lock. They actually meet in Catherine's stool house. Is that what I think it means? Toilet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but obviously being queen, this is quite a large, more ornate room than that implies by the name. Uh, large enough for Lady Rochford to sleep in the corner, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they meet at uh, 11 o'clock at night they talk flirtatiously through the night until 3 o'clock in the morning mm. so Catherine sends Culpepper bracelets to keep his arms warm the joke <laughs> being that previously he'd always had various women on his arms to keep them warm but now he's forsaken all others for Catherine and so he needs the bracelets I mean bracelets, bracelets don't keep you warm it's like a bad pun <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is I mean I think it is it is a bit of a bad pun it's a little little lover's joke yeah, you have to be in love to like those sort of things. Mm. But you'd laugh out loud if you got that by a text, but actually, everyone else <laughs> Many historians have been dismissive of Catherine. Lacey Baldwin-Smith described her as a juvenile delinquent, Alison Weir an empty-headed wanton, while David Lode said she was a stupid and oversexed adolescent who certainly behaved like a whore. Oh, who's that guy? Rather harsh words, uh, I think it's fair yeah. to say. But more recently, historians have been far more sympathetic, seeing her more as a victim rather than a perpetrator. Uh, as Lucy Worsley put it, she's less a good time girl and more an abused child. So partic yeah. particularly with Mannix, you know, Catherine's only 14, while he's both an adult and in a position of authority as a music teacher, which obviously today we would uh, call sexual abuse. And I was a... Uh, child chorister in the 90s <laughs> I'm, I know exactly these characters um, and also this and also Catherine how it affect her she was sort of I just can see it it is an abuse of sorts and it's her mm. her skill that she takes through her life it, and that's the role she's forced to play now indeed Catherine actually makes various confessions to Thomas Cramer and in her third one she said that she was pressured into the relationships with both Mannix and Derham First, at the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him a sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body, which neither became me with honesty to permit, nor him to require. Also, Francis Derham, by many persuasions, procured me to his vicious purpose, and obtained first to lie upon my bed with his doublet and hose, and after within the bed, and finally he lay with me naked, and used me in such sort as man doth his wife, many and sundry times." Yeah, it's quite possible. It's now, oh, but I mean, like that. I I sort of think that that's a way. Oh no, it's such dangerous ground. Well, as one more point on this, Reetha Warnick has speculated that Cole Pepper may have learnt of her affair with Derham, and thus, rather than them being lovers, perhaps he was blackmailing Catherine and seeking mm. sexual favours to ensure his silence. And interestingly, there is a story of Cole Pepper previously having been charged with raping a park keeper's wife before oh. being pardoned, though historians aren't quite clear on whether that's true or whether it's definitely him. Very sensitive issue, and there is, of course, a huge problem in society with women who are victims to abuse not being mm. believed by the police or the legal system or, indeed, society. That being said, most historians do still conclude that Catherine was not um, abused, at least not by um, Derham and uh, Culpepper. I think the manic situation is the one which is most obviously... You think it is an abusive situation, yeah. but with Derham and with Culpepper, historians tend to think that actually that's not uh, abuse. Nicola Cornick has pointed out that unpalatable as it is for us today, 
as you were saying earlier, girls were legally permitted to marry at the age of 12. Mm. And marriages weren't usually consummated this early, but by Tudor standards, Catherine would not have been considered a child at 14, 15, 16. Mm. But regardless, even if it was only the Maddox one that was uh, abusive, the others follow because of that. You know, her her attitude to relationships has been so... It seems to have been so damaged mm. that she was likely to... An unhealthy attitude to other relationships or be more willing to risk stuff because i don't know i don't mm. know why but you know it's not a good start is it gareth russell has argued that Catherine's confession claiming she was abused by derham was a tissue of lies told in trying and fearful circumstances Catherine tried to downplay how long they had been a couple in the process unknowingly contradicting eight or nine affidavits from other witnesses all of whom had been kept deliberately separate from one another by the counsellors sent to question them yeah. So basically, her initial confession is entirely in accord with what everybody else says, and then probably panicking, thinking, oh, I'm not sure that was the right line to take. She does her second one, mm-hmm. which, as I said, doesn't back, isn't backed up by anything that anybody else says. For Culpepper, there's no evidence he knew about Durham, nor that he was blackmailing Catherine. And as I said, she seems to have sought him out, and their conversations just suggest two quite confident young people flirting with each other. Mm. You know, the gift of a velvet cap was hardly likely to pay off the blackmail. Um, But that's not to say, as you were sort of really saying, that Catherine doesn't still mean she isn't a victim or deserving of sympathy. She's young. She's not raised for queenship. She is, you know, at least abused by Mannix at an early age. She faces the double standards of a patriarchal society. Understandable that she panics under questioning and tried to give the answers she thought would be best received by Henry. Yeah. Do you know what it is? It's it's tragic. It's the definition of tragedy. It's got something uh, Shakespearean about it, although they, he, they didn't know it was a, oops, he existed yet. But, it, but it, actually, it's more modern than that, because there's nothing star-crossed about it. It is just a horrible, gritty northern drama. <laughs> <laughs> it's more cares, less uh, fair Verona. Hmm. One other interesting thing, it's a sort of a... A sort of argument against uh, the scandal score is that Col- uh, Catherine and Culpepper both deny that they slept together. Mm. As I said, Culpepper claimed that he intended and meant to do ill with the Queen, and that likewise mm. the Queen so minded with him. But in the event, nothing happened. Yeah, he he hasn't really hasn't got the hang of this, has he? <laughs> Uh, but that's David Sarki observed for all those late night rendezvous. There was so little to confess; it was all talk, talk, talk. Now, Lady Rochford, who's the other person most likely who would have known uh, what mm. happened, thought that they had slept together. Yeah, she's an old wooden spoon, though, isn't she? She's stirring it all up all the time. Margaret Morton recalled seeing a look between them of such a sort that I thought oh. there was love between them, and that on one occasion they'd been in Catherine's closet alone together for several hours, and for certain they had passed out. Which was uh, 16th century slang for... Uh, orgasm oh right mm. I don't think I could say that for certainty about anyone but as we were sort of alluding to earlier the, the culprit was still admitting that he and Catherine had planned to commit adultery mm. um, so as the Earl of Hartford observed that is already too much that's yeah what are you doing this isn't Just- the defence you think it is <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not making the point you think you are. <laughs> so, scandal. 
Oh, it's big time. Mm. It doesn't feel... Um, doesn't I think it's like uh, looking at the Tower of London today. It doesn't feel as big because of all the stuff around it. <laughs> yeah. And that's Henry. That's yeah. Henry's fault. If this were any other mm. king, it would be remembered like uh, uh, Queen and King. It'd be remembered like Beckett. Mm. But as it is, she's surrounded by the gherkin of Anne Boleyn and the cheese grater of... It's still big, though. I just don't wonder if it doesn't quite echo down the ages because of those taller buildings around it. But that's not necessarily because of the um, a lack of significance in the, the its own scandal so much as just that we're in this heady complex of uh, the six wives of Henry VIII and obviously Henry VIII, whereas if this was ten episodes ago... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously there's the issue of her as a victim and how we're judging that and she's so young but i also think you know this is this is yeah, scandalous. It just is massively scandalous this is massively it? scandalous i don't know why i can't don't want to give it 10 sympathy it's because weird because in a way it's more scandalous than Amberlyn because she actually does yeah. have an affair with yeah. Culpepper. whether or not she slept with Culpepper, they it's an affair and it's i feel like we've uh, we've found some um fault in in the um Matrix. <laughs> in, in, yeah, space-time continuum, where 10 doesn't mean 10 at the same time somehow. Here, it just is just straight up, yeah, she did it. Yeah. She got killed for it. Mm. And it just is scandalous. And yeah, we'll chalk that one up. Next, yeah. next, next. But she's just gone bang, straight in. There's no build-up. I'm not sure how I feel about that. This all... Uh, yeah. Okay, well, there you are. Ten points. You meant to tease me, Graham. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, Give me a bit of grey area that I can explore, and I don't actually want literal scandal. No, yeah, this feels so transactional. <laughs> I've asked you for scandal, I've paid you ten points, and you've given me juicy scandal, and yet somehow I feel dirty. <laughs> well, I'm going ten. Yeah, I'm going ten. So it is a 20 out of 20 for scandal. And, you know... Generally, I'm, I'm sorry. Subjectivity. Whilst Norfolk may have hoped that Catherine had become a figurehead for the Conservative factions at court, Catherine instead proved uh, politically neutral. So, as David Starkey put it, she was a good-time girl, but like many good-time girls, she was also warm, loving and good-natured. She wanted to have a good time, but she wanted other people to have a good time too. Nor, refreshingly, in that God-infested century, does she seem to have had much truck with religion. This was not the stuff of martyrs, but nor was it the stuff that made masters of others, and that, in the reign of Henry VIII, was something. She seems to have pursued the traditional path of the Queen as peaceweaver, um, so a focus of unity rather than the source of discord. Uh, so even before her wedding to Henry, she wrote to Cranmer, she said a reformer, assuring him that you should not care for your businesses, for you should be in better case than ever you were. Well, I don't worry if you're worried that a Howard on the throne is going to kick you out of the game you're going to be absolutely fine with me but before she was married to henry she wrote that before the literal ceremony but when she is preparing to become queen okay so it's not quite as bold as it sounds oh yeah yeah it's not like she writes from lambeth when she's 15 yeah her neutrality is also shown in the traditional queenly role of intercessor so uh, thomas wyatt uh, an ally of cromwell and john wallop a conservative both get sent to the tower for treasonous correspondence um, is this the same... This is the Poet Laureate fellow? 
And uh, the, yeah, the poet uh, that Anne Boleyn may or may not have had an early relationship with, the one who gets sent off to be ambassador the Imperial Court. Gosh, he is lucky to still be around, isn't he? He's got nine lives. Now, Wyatt in particular was thought to like to die, but following a river procession to celebrate her queenship, Catherine publicly intercedes for Wyatt and then Wallop's release, and Henry graciously agrees. Now, it has a bit of a feel of a staged intercession, as I say, it comes at the end of this big pageant for Catherine's queenship. Both a conservative and a reformer. It feels like Henry maybe wants to teach both sides a lesson, but needs to use Catherine as the queen to enable mercy without him backing down. Mm. Um, but contemporaries, um, including French and Spanish ambassadors, all specifically credit Catherine with lobbying Henry for their release, and that this was the crucial factor. So it may be that the ceremony was staged, but the actual intercession was real. Now, Catherine also has a tricky position as Henry's fifth wife of course so she gained three stepchildren uh, and furthermore her step uh, her predecessor was also very much alive and well yeah yeah catherine requested etiquette advice for how to greet anne of cleves when she was invited to the new year's court in 1541 it's like having two popes isn't it well exactly yeah is they don't really because technically she wasn't legally married to henry and legally queen yeah. and yet she sort of was so yeah so that is a good question and and i frankly i bet there's not an answer it would be making it up yeah basically i think they just decided that catherine would just smooth over anything by just being very generous and spontaneous yeah let's let's just sort of laugh it off yeah it won't come up again so don't worry about it uh we observed that catherine received her most kindly showing her great favor and courtesy uh, and the visit was a great success with catherine and anne dancing the night away That's really nice. Mary was trickier, of course. But while Catherine took umbrage at Mary's initial lack of respect, she was more than happy to accept the submission when it came. And it was then on Catherine's insistence that she and Henry accept, uh, accepted Mary's invitation to visit Mary and Prince Edward at Waltham. And afterwards, Shapley reported that Henry had granted Mary full permission to reside at court, and the Queen has countenanced it with good grace. And this visit comes shortly after Catherine had personally reached out independently to meet uh, Elizabeth, who was less essential uh, to meet than Mary and Edward, because obviously Edward is the boy, Mary is older. Uh, yeah. But Elizabeth is, of course, Catherine's second cousin, as Anne Boleyn's daughter. So she has a relationship with Elizabeth, family relationship with Elizabeth, outside of the fact that she's a stepmother. So it's obviously important to Catherine that she meets with Elizabeth. That seems to be more of a personal choice than one that she needed to do at the time. And how old is Elizabeth? Uh, Elizabeth is seven. That could have been a lovely relationship. Mm. She could have been like a step... Uh, uh, genuinely could have been a, a stepmother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the high point of her queenship came with the Northern Progress, in which uh, Gareth Russell noted she was a quiet but important figure alongside Henry. Catherine was a flawlessly behaved consort, content to dazzle as a supporting player, clothed in silver next to Henry's cloth of gold, never pulling focus or openly pursuing her own agenda. Other than Culpepper, obviously. Yeah, just don't don't look amazing, but don't take the spotlight. Hmm. Very good, that's all you've got to do. So you couldn't really have asked a much better start, to be fair. So as David Stocky concluded, Catherine ensured to begun rather well. She had a good heart and the less bad head than most of her chroniclers have assumed. Yeah, she attacks the inbox well. Um, but yes, the downside, obviously, is that it does all fall apart very quickly and very dramatically. So as uh, mm. uh, Gareth Russell's put it, um, if one were to try to summarise her life from this point on, it would be that she excelled in public but made more and more mistakes in private. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
bit Diana-esque. Hmm. Great PR and and uh, a life of tragedy behind the scenes. Hmm. The thing is, she never really seems to have matured out of the consequence-free boarding school vibe. Mm. revels in the gossip of her ladies and continues to pursue her own thrills some historians have labelled it dangerous idiocy to appoint so many people to her household who knew of her colourful past in fairness maybe they were more like like with um, Dara maybe they're more likely to keep Sturm if they're invested in her queenship with employment mm. than if they're on the outside but again may have encouraged the wrong sort of atmosphere if she still sort of felt like it was that all fun and giggles and mm. and it also comes to bite when the investigations do begin and she is surrounded by people who are able to go into a lot of detail about everything that happened at Lambeth. And do, as a and, way of defending themselves. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a short reign that unravels quickly without any real legacy. I, th- I feel like she threw herself into it. Mm. And there's not much there because there's not much time. She really tried to and she just had a, a young head on young shoulders. Two... It all goes wrong so quickly that she isn't really able to have much of a much of a legacy there. And I don't know if it feels Im- more impressive because yeah. of how disastrous it all ends up being that you'd think there wouldn't be anything impressive, but actually it's not that much to compare against other And also people. she's got those achievements all in that honeymoon period where she's a 19-year-old newlywed and he's 50 or whatever and she's requesting stuff and he just obviously says yes. I'm going to... I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give her a three. I just think that it was a a decent few things that she did, and better I than think I think I, you'd expect, but not ultimately that big a legacy, really. That's yeah. uh, so a five for subjectivity. Longevity. Catherine is queen consort from the twenty eighth of July, fifteen forty, to the twenty third of November, fifteen forty one. So one point three three years. Right. Which gives her a score of two which is the 53rd best overall. Who's worse? Just Anne? Anne, Yeah, there aren't many worse. She's fifth among the six wives. They're only one month less than Jane Seymour. Crikey. Yeah, this is all so quick. I know I say it every time we visit (laughs) Henry VIII, but I can't believe this is so compressed. Dynasty, not the broken. Catherine has no children by Henry, which gives her a score of zero, which is joint 42nd overall. So that gives her a total score... Of 28.5. Okay, any good? Not particularly good. That places her between Anne of Bohemia and Elf Gifu of York in a 29th position of the 42 that we will have done so far. Jane Seymour got 30.5. Anyway, it's not all about the scores. Does she have that certain something, the lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! I'm sort of conflicted here as well, bizarrely. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it is. It's quite dazzling. She's got. She obviously probably had a certain star quality. It's razzle dazzle. So it feels like she's a bit more of a celebrity. Sort of, yeah, a bit more of yeah, a celebrity. Do you know what this this whole reign for me can be summed up like in uh, like this? You get the latest Miley Cyrus or pop starlet s- song s- single. You know, say she's got a record out. Put that on in the CD player, press play, and then after 20 seconds, just smash the stereo to pieces with an axe. <laughs> and it's like, it was like, oh, lovely, 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 absolutely ghastly image. So if we'd have got to the end of the record and it had hit number one, yep, she'd have the Rex Factor, but it's just um, 
Crikey, what a scene. Well, that's the thing. I think probably, actually, that she's closer to getting the Rex Factor with uh, the CD player being smashed to pieces than if mm. you just listen to an inoffensive pop song. Yeah, yeah. And that's not her. That's just her error where she sort of starts to swear in the song and uh, they pull the plug on the concert. I've just got it. Mm. You know, this is a pun on Rex Factor. No, on X Factor. <laughs> oh, God. On X Factor, the show. That's this bit. She was doing really well on the stage bit and until great big fat Simon Cowell, Henry VIII, just went smash on a big red button that meant trapdoor into pool of sharks. And it, it's... So this job now is like knowing that that... It's going to a friend who knows that I was there when... Uh, Miley Cyrus was put in the in the tank of sharks by Simon, Simon Cowell, Cowell, who is being played by Henry VIII. Yeah, and him asking me how good was the song. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. That's not the point. <laughs> well, how can I tell you how good the song is then? I know you just have been essentially singing it to me, but did you see the bit where he smashed up the stereo? Is what I'm saying. So it's a no from me. Okay, right. Well. I mean, I can make that new plane, I grow. I've gone round around the house. If you don't know the way home by now, yeah, I think it's got, it's a no for me as well. I think it's weird because in some ways she does have that style quality as her as herself, but also because of it's a very tragic and dramatic denouement. Mm. Yeah, that it is remarkable and stands out. But I don't think otherwise she's remarkable enough and does anything enough. No. to warrant it so i think for that reason i'm out <laughs> i mean it's uh that's the kez gritty northern bit isn't it <laughs> where the nice pop song suddenly turns into a, a video of a man smashing a stereo up and <laughs> clearly having a breakdown <laughs> there's death involved and stuff you're like this, this went this went really serious really quickly Correspondence Corner. So that was Catherine Howard. Let us know what you thought about her. We'll do a writer reply episode for The Six Wives, but equally we enjoy getting your messages however many years later you may be listening. Uh, message us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod, on Facebook or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get over 150 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. David Pickler, Christian Bard, Emily Hillwright, Masfa, Tyler Bay, Victoria Sloyan, Sabina and Troy, Cassandra DeCanta, Jennifer Ponder, The Tudors Suck, Johanna Sundquist, Daisy Bonsall, Jessica Keys, Xavier Alford, Beth McMiles, Monica Blankenau, Chica Ike, Kerry Jones, Ginny Wiltz, Ed Robinson, Keith Pipo, Steve Henderson, Karen Landers, Matthew Meehan, and Jennifer Carney. Welcome, welcome. You see, you've all got your ceremonial ribbons, attach those to your left breast. And take your seat on the right. <laughs> so that's all from us today. Uh, just one more now to go with the Six Wives of Henry VIII. So next time it will be the last in line, Catherine Parr. Henry's final shake of the bag. See you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.